This morning we return to the 15th chapter of the Gospel according to John. And uh, this morning we're getting the final point of the two-point message that I never got to complete last week. Um, In the 15th chapter we have Jesus using the very familiar image of the vine. Uh, God is a God who has planted vineyards in the history of uh, Israel. Israel itself was a vine he planted in Canaan and they came into the land and we're told they defiled God's land. Um, we're told that God did all that he could and all that he should to ensure that his vine would bear fruit and yet it did not bear fruit in the nation. He looked for justice and he got oppression. He looked for righteousness and he, and he, heard, he heard a cry of again oppression on the part of those who were ill-treated and misused. And um, God's gardens and God's vines that he plants um, have as its end uh, that fruit would be born to his glory. The very creation account, we have the message that we hear repeated again and again in the word of God to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to have dominion over it. That was God's intention as he created man in his image and likeness and he planted a garden. And he put man in that garden. And he gave him commandments with respect to trees. And again, Adam's stay in that garden was but limited in that he was cast out of Eden, that garden of delight, the fellowship and presence of God, because of sin and because of rebellion. Um, Israel was in an attempt to restore it. it uh, again, you have the picture of the land being like the garden of God. And yet it was not a garden in which the inhabitants honored the, the, the Lord of the land. They did not honor the God who planted them in that land. And hence they lost the land and were taken to, into captivity into Babylon. And though they had returned, they stand in wait of one who would come and restore God's garden. And Jesus, in declaring himself to be the true vine, he's declaring himself to be the fulfillment of that very theme of Holy Scripture. Israel failed as the vine. Adam failed in Eden. Jesus comes and he brings restoration of all that was lost through sin. That once again the church of Christ, the body of Christ, might be a people who would bear fruit for God's glory. That we would be fruitful, we would multiply, we would fill the earth, we would subdue it, and we would have dominion over it. Again, not in our own persons, but as the servants and representative of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that all the peoples of the earth would hear the gospel and come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reading of chapter 15 can sometimes be a little bit confusing, and I thought it might be good, as we began this morning, to give you a little bit of a key to, I think, how it can be read unto profit. Um, one of the problems is, is that there's lots of repetition in this passage, and there's lots of things that are added and some things that are subtracted as we move along. And that's because um, Jesus begins with setting out the general theme of vine, vine dressers, and branches with a focus mostly between himself and his father. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. And then all of the action takes place with reference 
to what the father does as the gardener. What the father does is the one who seeks to ensure that the branches bear fruit for his glory. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, that is the father, takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he, that is the father, prunes it or cleanses it, that it may bear more fruit. But then that picture of Jesus as the vine is again repeated in the fifth verse. We have again, I am the vine. Twice he says, I am the vine. Now in verse 1, he's the true vine in relationship to the Father, but now he's the vine in relationship to the branches in the words of verse 5. And so we have a repetition that is meant to be explanatory. But now Jesus, and given the basic picture of himself as the vine, the Father as the vine dresser, of God's purpose and will to see fruit born on the branches that abide in Jesus, Now he directs his attention to the disciples himself. And he says, now, let me give you a further word of explanation as to what this means for you. I've spoken about what this means between me and my father, as I am the vine and he is the gardener or the vine dresser. But now directing my attention to you, he says, I am the vine again and you are the branches. Now he's taking this whole picture and he's applying it to them with further words of explanation. He says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Now he's also talked about the Father cleansing and pruning that fruit will be born. um, And how abiding in him will lead to fruit to be be born in verse 4. But now it's asserted again in terms of much fruit being born. And then Jesus says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Again, before, he's talking about the branch abiding in the vine. If the branch is not abiding in the vine, it uh, it withers, it dies. But now, um, I'm sorry, he he says that in verse verse 6. But um, it's, again, personal. He that that abides in me, I in him. He's he's addressing the people um, who are hearing these words, his disciples, And he's directing them how they might bear much fruit uh, for God. And then in verse 7, he gives further explanation in terms of how there are additional characteristics to being fruitful. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, that's something we've never seen before, my words abiding in you, before it's just been you, you abide in me and I abide in you, but now my words need to abide in you and then you're to ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you and so there's an addition of the word and there's an addition of prayer and then he says he concludes by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples so you see what I'm getting at is that we have explanatory words that our Lord gives first giving the general scene of The whole question of his identity as the true vine. The vine of the Father's planting. The vine of which the Father oversees. The fruit that's born in that vine for his glory. What the Father does. And now he addresses his disciples. What they are to be doing. What their responsibility is. And when you think of the responsibility that's laid upon the disciples of Jesus in this whole picture. The word that's directed to them is that they are to abide. Now the branches are supposed to bear fruit. That's what um, 
gardens are all about. That's what the planting of the Lord is all about. That's what the gardening work of God is all about. God wants to see a harvest of fruit born for his glory. And he's intent upon doing that. And if it didn't work in Adam, he's going to do it with Israel. If it doesn't work in Israel, he's going to do it ultimately by sending his son. What couldn't be done because human nature is what it is and sin is what it is. What couldn't be done because Israel was stiff of neck and hard of heart. God's going to bring the second Adam, the, the, the true Adam, the true Israel, his own son, and plant him in the world. And the planting of Jesus in the world is that which is going to bring fruit to be born, much fruit to be born. But every disciple has its role. Every disciple has its own part to play. Because you see, we've been brought to be in Him. We've been brought to a saving relationship to Him in which we are now in union with Christ as a branch is in union with the vine. We've been brought to be in union with the Son of God and the way that's done is by faith. And now as vines, in, as branches in the vine, who come into the vine by faith, what's the continual responsibility that's laid upon the branches? Well, it's to abide in the vine. It's to abide in Him. Now this sometimes gets a little bit confusing to people because they hear words like abide and they think this must mean something different than just believe. I mean, believe is one thing, but abiding is something different. And I've often heard that said. And I've often heard people tell, ask me, well, how do you abide? And they think there's some kind of mystical trick to this whole question of how we abide in Christ. But in reality, what it means to abide in Christ is not something essentially different than to believe in Him. Because you see, when we believe in Him, it's our desire to remain in Him. It ought to be. Having a sight of Jesus, we want to know more of Jesus. We want to have greater connection to Jesus. We want to have deeper fellowship with Jesus. And that's what the significance of this matter of abiding in Him entails. It's not different from faith. In fact, it is the essence of faith. And I'm personally glad that the scriptures use this term abide to to describe faith. It's to describe the actings of faith, exactly what faith does. Because you see, a lot of times we think of faith as just, well, we have an acquaintance with Jesus through the gospel, we hear the word, and we nod our heads in agreement. Yes, Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, He's been risen from the dead. And it really doesn't mean a whole lot more. Uh, We believe. We just assent. We just say, okay, that's so. I believe it. And um, that settles it, and uh, we're done with it. Well, no. Because you see, the relationship that begins with the first actings of faith are to continue with continual actings of faith that bring us to want to remain in union and communion and fellowship with the Christ of Holy Scripture. Now, the term abide begins, or it's first mentioned, uh, well there's one mention with reference to this, whom the Spirit would abide on, but in terms of um, the matter of things uh, related to Jesus, and this whole matter of abiding, it really begins in chapter 1 of John's Gospel, when you have two disciples of John the Baptist who hear John's words behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
But hear John's words. There's one who comes after me, who ranks before me, because he was before me. And he's the one upon whom the Spirit would abide. The Spirit would come to abide on him. And then we find the next day, in verse 35, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by. And once again he says, as he said before, in verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God. Now the two disciples heard him say this, and what did they do? They followed Jesus. Now what does it mean that they followed Jesus? Well, they followed Jesus because they heard John's words about the Lamb, didn't they? And they believed John's words about the Lamb. And so their following of Jesus, again, is also an act of faith. Faith brings us to follow. We don't just credit it as true and then go our way and leave Jesus in heaven with God as we live out our, our lives upon the earth with no connection, no contact, no involvement, no communion with Jesus at all. No. Believing in Jesus, you follow Jesus. To have a sight of Jesus as the true Lamb of God is a sight you can never forget. And it's a sight that you can't be indifferent towards. It's a sight that you want continued exposure to the fullness of the significance of this one who is the Lamb sent to take away the sin of the world. And so the disciples heard him say this. They followed him. And then Jesus turned and saw them. And he said to them, What are you seeking? What are you seeking? He didn't say, just what do you want? What are you seeking? Yeah, you're seeking for something that's led you to follow me. And their response is, Rabbi, which is explained means teacher, what are we seeking? We're seeking to know where you are abiding. It's the same word. The Greek word meno. Where are you abiding? And Jesus said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was abiding, and they abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And I don't think this is just a, a picture of the stage direction of the play, that you can then replicate it for a, a, a Jesus story. This is something that has deep theological ramifications. You behold the Lamb of God, and you don't forget what you've seen. Faith leads you to follow Him, and faith leads you then to say, where are you abiding that we might abide with you? Our interest is to have continual connection, fellowship, interaction. Where you are, we want to be. The wonderful thing about the Word of God is that God is a God who wills to abide with the human beings. He wills to dwell with men and women who believe in His name and turn to Him in faith. He abode with the nation of Israel, His vine, that He led through the wilderness and brought into the land in a tabernacle of a tent of meeting. It was interesting, the tent of meeting is also called a tent of dwelling. God dwells in the midst of Israel. And he dwells in the midst of Israel so that a place of his dwelling would actually become a place of their meeting. Because the house of meeting becomes the house of the house of, of dwelling or the place of dwelling also becomes a house of meeting. Those are the two things that are descriptive of the tabernacle in the wilderness. It's the place of divine dwelling, God's there. And it's the place of God's meeting with his people.
God meets with his people. And his whole purpose of dwelling with them is to meet with them. It's not just to have a presence that's unacknowledged, that's unappreciated, that's unsought. His presence among his people goes to the end that faith acknowledges that presence, that faith enjoys that presence, that faith enters into that presence with a continual commitment to enjoy the benefits of his presence. So that a constant abiding or connection or remaining in faith becomes the style of life we live as his people. We would no sooner think of separation from Christ as a vine, as a branch would think of separating from its vine. What happens when a branch separates from from the vine? Well, the same thing that happens to someone who professes the name of Christ that ceases to believe. That ceases to have an active, present tense faith in his name. Jesus says what will happen in chapter 15 and verse 6. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. What's the picture? The picture is, if anyone does not remain believing, that does not remain seeking, that does not remain in contact, in communion and fellowship with the Son of God, he's not a branch in the vine any longer. He's completely separated himself from the source of of good and of strength and of the sap of the vine and he is cast away as a branch to wither. There's no flourishing, there's no fruitfulness. It dies. The branch simply dies. What do you do with dead branches? You gather them up. And What do you do with the dead branches you gather up? Make a fire. They're consumed in the fire and they're burnt. Now, we're not told who's doing that, but because in the previous context, it's the vine dresser that is caring for the vine and casting away unfruitful branches. It's the Father that does this work. It's the judgment that God brings upon professing disciples who think that the matter of faith is some temporary thing. I'm a Christian because I believed back in uh, the day when I was a kid and went to camp. And I heard a preacher. And the preacher told me to come forward. And I came forward. I prayed the prayer. I'm in. And I'm never to be separated. No, that's not true. That's not true. There's no separation from those who are genuinely in Christ Jesus. Not for somebody who just prayed a prayer. But somebody that has life union with the vine. That life union with the vine means you've seen him as the disciples saw the lamb. And you follow him as the disciples follow Jesus. And that begins a lifetime of following because faith leads you to follow. So there's no such thing as a faith that does not follow. There's no such thing as a faith that does not remain. True faith continues. True faith perseveres. Jesus said it earlier in chapter 8 and verse 31.
which says that the, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. It's interesting. It doesn't say here that he, they believed in him, just they believed him. Well, there was something about his words, something about the things he was doing that they credited it, they nodded their heads, said, well, okay, we'll follow this guy as far as we can and just see if it pans out that he's the true Messiah. But there was not the faith that was in him. There was not a union, a connection they actually had with the Son of God. And, and Jesus' words to these people were, if you abide in my word, it's not enough just to come and agree with me up to a point. You need to remain with me and remain in my word. Then you are truly my disciples. Again, this matter of abiding is a matter of continuing. It's a matter of persevering. It's a matter that Christian faith continues on and perseveres. And so, abiding is not different than faith. It's a quality that's bound up in faith. It's what faith does. Faith beholds. Faith follows. Faith receives the good of the vine. Faith continues on and remains. To abide in Jesus is to continue in the faith of Jesus. It's to remain in Him and have Him remain in us. It's to retain our connection with Him. Our fellowship with Him. Truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Abiding in Him is persevering in faith. To dwell with Him. To have Him dwell with us. And to Him dwell in us. And so this passage that speaks, I do believe, about the nature of faith as persevering faith really gives a full full picture of what is involved in faith. It's not just assent. It's commitment. It's not just agreement. It's following. The picture is that of dwelling with Christ and having Christ to dwell with us. I think it's interesting that in the garden context you find language like that. Abide in me. Dwell with me. This again, in the Garden of Eden, God dwelt with Adam. Walked with him in the cool of the day. There was daily involvement of God with his creature made in his image and made with his likeness. He knew the voice of the Lord and the walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He knew that was God. He knew God. That was God's garden. And he knew the part of living in God's garden was having dealings with God himself. Think of living as a member of the nation of Israel where the God of Mount Sinai, the God who revealed himself in fire and thunder in a voice so frightening to the people they said Moses we don't want to hear God speak to us in this way you go up into the mountain you go up into the cloud you go get the word of God and you bring it to us 
And yet it was that very God, the God of Sinai, the God who was revealed in the cloud and in the fire, who came from Sinai to the tent in the end of the book of Exodus. He made the tent. It was a tent of his dwelling. It was a tent of meeting. And God came from the glory that was his majestic presence on Sinai. And God came and dwelt in the tabernacle with a presence so great, not even Moses could go near the tent. God says, this is my house in Israel. I dwell in the midst of the camp. I dwell in the midst of my people. How does that place of dwelling become a place of meeting? God says, I'm going to tell you how you do it in the book of Leviticus that speaks of sacrifice. You got to have the sacrificial offerings. So you see, what Jesus does in coming as the true vine is he comes to die for us. He comes to spill his blood. That the enmity would be removed. That the distance would be removed. That we would be able through his shed blood to draw near unto God. And to have a relationship with God of intimacy, of fellowship, in which he becomes the tabernacle who dwells among us. And we meet with God through him. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through Him. But through Him we come to the Father. Through Him we dwell with God. Through Him we abide in a faith relationship with God. We become a habitation of God through the Spirit. God dwells with us and we dwell in Him. Where do you dwell, Lord? Where do you stand? Where, Where are you remaining? Jesus says, come and see. And we go and we follow. And where he abides, we abide. And he, where we abide, he abides. There is this union that's inseparable. Nothing can separate us from this union, from this love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, that's the nature of faith. It receives Jesus. It, it rests in Jesus. It looks to Jesus. It beholds Jesus. It follows Jesus. It abides with Jesus. It remains with Jesus. It perseveres to the end. Of course, the absence of faith is described in that sixth verse that we looked at, where faith is not present, where faith is just something that is a mirage, and then some people um, experience. They think they have believed, but, but they really don't. And the proof of it is they don't abide. They don't remain. Like the stony ground here. Here's the word of the Lord and immediately receives it with joy. And then tribulation, persecution, and affliction come for the sake of the word. And they fall away. They fall away. They don't continue. They don't persevere. They don't abide in Christ. They become like that branch. that no longer abides in the vine. Withers and dies. Good for nothing but the eternal flames. The nature of faith is, is, is wondrous, it's glorious, it's, it's that which attaches us to the Son of God in a union 
that is inseparable. The absence of faith is something that's frightening. No flourishing. No usefulness. No good. Nothing but eternal burnings away from the presence of the Lord. But as Jesus moves on to explain what this faith relationship involves, he adds a couple of things to the picture that are the necessary accompaniments of faith. I've said a lot about what accompanies faith is also following, this remaining and persevering and all the rest. But there's two essential factors, and maybe you should call it something like the food that faith feeds on. There's food that faith feeds on. You know, faith is something that though it always unites us to Jesus can be described as weak faith and strong faith. Those who are weak in faith, Paul can speak of. Jesus says, O ye of little faith. Now, the property of faith is it always brings us to Christ. It always joins us to Christ in that life union. It always brings us in some fashion or form to remain in Christ, that we don't apostatize, we don't throw off the faith, we don't say, I no longer need Jesus, nor want Jesus, nor desire Jesus, nor seek to serve Jesus. No, true faith always seeks to serve. True faith always seeks to know. True faith always seeks to pursue, but not always in the same vigor, not always with the same strength. And so when Jesus speaks about this relationship of faith and abiding in him, he does give two aspects or or, or properties or elements in which faith finds a path of strength. is that which faith can feed upon. And that's God's word, or Christ's word, and that's also prayer. This again, as Jesus makes the picture more clear, as he explains to his disciples what this faith relationship means, at first it's just, abide in me. Abide in your knowledge of me, in your understanding of me. Abide in your relationship with me. Continue that. But then in verse 7, he adds something to that question of abiding, or remaining, or dwelling with Jesus. It's if you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Many times it's not so much a question, are you in Christ or not in Christ? It's the question is, do you have a fresh understanding and appreciation of what that relationship entails and what it involves. Sometimes we just go distant to that reality of what faith means and what faith brings us to and what blessings we possess because of faith and what privileges are ours in the faith of the gospel. What promises are given because of our relationship to Jesus. We grow distant not so much from Jesus' person we grow distant from Jesus' words. And we need to have his words continually being heard. His words continually being rehearsed in our minds. That's why scripture tells us the blessed person is the person who does what? Who meditates in the law of the Lord day and night. There's that constant interaction with scripture. The constant taking in of scripture. Jeremiah says, your words were found and I did eat them. 
and your words became unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. You think of Jeremiah. He's a guy that lived in troublesome times. He was a man who lived in the face of universal opposition. We have that little jingle about the poor kid that's looking for pity. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. Think I'll eat some worms. Well, Jeremiah could have sung that song with genuine reality. Everybody was hating on him. His countrymen hated him. The leaders of the nation hated him. There was opposition and persecution everywhere he turned his head. And yet he found God's words. Your words were found. And I ate ate them. I consumed them. I took them in to my mind. I took them in to my soul. I took them in to my inner being. And the intake of your words resulted in your words became to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Even in terrible trouble sometimes. We need the words of Jesus to dwell in us richly. That's what Paul tells the Colossians they're to be doing. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Not just a passing acquaintance with his words. Daily meditation, day and night. Rehearsing the words of Christ to our souls. Not just when we come to church on Sunday, folks. It's great to take in God's word when we come together. It's great to take in his words when it's read publicly, when the word of God is proclaimed in sermons. That's all, all to the good. But you don't just come to a meal once a week and think you're going to be sustained through the week with proper bodily strength. We're made so that we need our hungers and nourishment on a daily basis, on a continual basis. That's true of us physically, and that's true of us spiritually. We need constant refreshment from the Word of God. We need constant nourishment and stimulation from the Word of God. Stirring our our minds up and our hearts up and the promises of God. And so often it is um, that we allow the promises of God just to settle into the bottom of our gut perhaps. And it's not doing us much good. Uh, We let the word of God just uh, not be activated, not to be stirred up. And I think of how the apostle speaks of the stir up the gift that's in you. The stuff that needs to be constantly stirred up within us. So the word of God is one of the great accompaniments, one of the great aspects of the food upon which we are to be feeding, that we might be spiritually capable and competent to be bearing much fruit. And then the other aspect of it is not only that we are to be having his word dwell within us, within, within us but also that prayer. He says, if you abide in me, in verse 7, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. 
We need to be a people that are constantly asking God for the things that we need. Because it's in asking that we are reminded of just how dependent we are upon the Lord Himself. You see, this matter of bearing fruit is not something that's just automatic. God's placed us in Christ, and you know, it's like you take up a you take the, the, the little toy and you wind it up, and it just goes on its own. It just uh, exists automatically. It continues automatically. No, we're a people that need to dwell in a living relationship with God, which not only is God's word constant stimulus to our souls which prayer is expressive of daily dependence and need. Again, Jesus has emphasized this. The branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. He says in the words of verse 5, whoever abides in me and I in him He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do not one good thing. But again, it's not just that faith has some powerful ability in and of itself to bear fruit in our lives. Faith is only as strong as the object that faith looks to. It says faith looks to the Lord. As faith looks in dependence upon the Lord. We say, Lord, I'm not sufficient of myself to think anything is from myself. You are my sufficiency. I come before you with utter dependence and utter need. That Lord, you would work in me to will to work for your own good pleasure. That you would work in me to make me the man, the woman, the boy, the girl that you want me to be. That you would work in me to make me the wife, the husband, the worker at your job that will give glory and honor to Christ. These are matters that we don't just take for granted. These becomes the matter for daily prayer. Daily seeking the Lord for His strength and His enablement. As branches in union with the vine, that we would draw from the source of our strength in Him every needed gift and grace to be able to be effective in the service of His name, that fruit would be born for His glory. came to worship this morning with a full sense that oh I had an outline I really didn't have an ability even to look at it because I can't see things really up close I'm going to have to do something in order to get my eyes to be able to read better because it's everything's really hazy at this point especially things up close distance it's wonderful but up close not much so I knew I couldn't really be dependent upon a sermon outline but you know ultimately my dependence is never my sermon outline It's never what I put on a piece of paper. It's always the fact that we come into the presence of the living God. We come with the dynamics of His promised presence and Spirit to be with us as we worship. And that even though my sermon on a piece of paper would just read flat, would read 
as if there's not much energy or conviction in it. That doesn't matter. It matters that we meet together in the presence of God. You calling upon his name that you would be given light and understanding. And you would be given an enablement to desire him more fully and sufficiently that you might bear fruit for his glory. And my crying to him, Lord, give me the ability to tell them how this all this work how all this works. That somehow in the midst of our cries to God and our abiding in him and in his presence and his presence with us, we're going to leave with something good having been accomplished here this morning. That fruit will be born to his glory. Whether I've enjoyed the preaching or don't enjoy the preaching, the fruit will be born to God's glory. That's the whole end of it. And it happens because we continue on. We persevere. We don't give up. We don't lose heart. We continue in the faith. It will happen because we've not become like branches cut off from the vine. We remain in Him. It will happen because we have His Word to energize us and to guide us and to instruct us and to fill our minds and our hearts with His truth. And we have access to Him in prayer calling upon His name with full dependence that He and He alone will make all this that we do this morning work out somehow, some way for His glory and for our good. If that weren't true, I would have stayed home this morning. But it is true. So we, we, in faith, venture out to do God's will in the full belief that fruit will be born. Because the living God is in this thing. And the living God has called us to be in fellowship with His Son. And the living God has called us to draw upon the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of His Spirit and the reality of His living presence in our midst that we would bear fruit for His glory. Not because we're especially good at producing fruit. We're not. But that He is the one, the the Lord of the harvest, the God who governs his garden, he will bring to pass fruitfulness as we simply look to him in faith and persevere in faith that he will cause much fruit to be born for his glory. May that be our trust and our confidence, not just when we gather on Sunday mornings, but when we venture out into any enterprise in the Christian life. Would it be as those who self-consciously know who we are as those joined to Jesus as a branch is connected to the vine so we are connected to him and we can do all things through him who strengthens us so let's be faithful to his word let's be faithful in prayer let's be faithful to remain abiding with him and in him let's pray together Father we're thankful for this time in your presence we're thankful for the word of God that is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our pathway. Indeed, apart from your word, Lord, we see so dimly, we see so we see in ways that just lack in clarity. But we're thankful that the scriptures are true and can be trusted. And we're thankful that you are the God who is in and with your people. And we're thankful for the grace that you supply to us so richly through Christ Jesus our Lord. So we pray that the things we've trafficked in this morning will be things that we would be given greater light and understanding in. 
we pray that, Lord, we'd be a more faithful people, a people whose faith would lead us to constant involvement, interaction, connection, and contact with the great God of our salvation, with your Son, Jesus Christ, and that through your working in us and through us, great, uh, that fruit would be born, that much fruit would be born, to the glory and the honor of your name. Hear our prayers as we ask these things. In Jesus' name, amen.